This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It hasn't even started yet, and there's already drama around the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. The event gavels open today, and delegates will hear a primetime speech tonight from Senator Bernie Sanders. An email leak over the weekend shows the DNC tried to stack the deck against him in favor of the presumptive nominee Hillary Clinton. Colorado's delegation, of course, runs heavily in Sanders' favor. Sanders supporter Joe Salazar, state representative from Thornton, is back with us. And we are joined by Clinton delegate Polly Baca. Welcome to you both. And Joe, Sanders delegates marched in the streets of Philadelphia yesterday. I want to know, would you support a roll call vote on the convention floor to choose the nominee and get people on the record? Oh, you bet. All right. That's that's simple. And is that a, a an opinion you held before this or has that changed your mind? Uh, no, I've always held that opinion that we should have a roll call vote. I think that that's part of our democratic process. And I would honor that roll call vote and I would cast my vote for Bernie Sanders as I have committed to. Mm. Do you think it's an imperative now? Uh, well, it was an imperative before I showed up and it remains an imperative for me. I mean, that's why... Uh, people in my in my area asked me to to be a delegate for Bernie Sanders, and I'm going to honor that. Do you think that there will be any disruption in the convention hall from Sanders delegates? You know, I'm I'm here. I'm watching everything unfold. I mean, this is truly history unfolding, and uh, I think anything is possible at this point, especially with the, the WikiLeaks email revelations. And it sounds like there's more to come. So I think that anything is possible. In the realm of anything is possible, do you think that if there is a roll call vote, it's possible that Sanders would prevail? Boy, that's that's a bigger question. Um, I, I just don't know. I, that requires a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters to start moving over towards Bernie Sanders, as well as the superdelegates uh, understanding that, uh, that you know, uh, the presidential election is on the line. So it, it could be possible if they do that. What was your reaction in general to news over the weekend from WikiLeaks? My reaction, my reaction was that um, disappointment. It wasn't something that came as a shock because Bernie Sanders supporters had been saying it for months that there had been uh, some collusion going on, that uh, the the DNC was working against uh, uh, Senator Sanders. And what we heard from Hillary Clinton folks was that, oh, you're just a bunch of conspiracy theorists. But look at what has happened. This, these, the email revelation, um, well, it's been a revelation to some in the country. For us, it was affirmation that, indeed, the DNC has been working against Senator Sanders. So my reaction is, okay, now we know it's there, and, uh, and we have to deal with it. Uh, can I get you to comment on the coming resignation of the chair of the Democratic National Committee? Do you think that's the right choice? I definitely think it's the right choice. Uh, in, in our laws, in the, in the, in the laws of our uh, national committee, it says that she is supposed to be uh, impartial, and she's violated that. And it shouldn't be an upcoming resignation. It should happen now. And, and that's what people are saying here at the convention who are Bernie Sanders supporters. And let me tell you something. The DNC has a problem internally. And one of the ways to deal with that problem internally is to deal with uh, the Wasserman Schultz a situation decisively. Let's not wait till Friday. Let's have it happen now. So that way there's an olive branch out to Bernie Sanders supporters that the DNC is listening. 
Debbie Wasserman Schultz is uh, the DNC chairwoman. Uh, Polly Baca, we'll get to you in just a moment. But uh, Representative Salazar, I just want to know, the last time you were on the program, you said that indeed you would cast your convention ballot for Bernie Sanders, but that come November you would vote for Hillary Clinton if she is indeed the nominee. Uh, You wouldn't necessarily endorse her or... Uh, knock on doors for her, but that you would cast a ballot for her. If she is the nominee, would you vote for her, uh, given what's happened? Well, you know, I, I have to say that I'm going to stick with my position. And, and it is very reluctant that I stick with my position that I'm going to vote for her in November if she happens to be the nominee. As I said, anything is possible here at the convention. But if she happens to be the nominee, I will still cast my vote for her. And it will be a vote that um, it's a vote of accountability. And I hope that she understands that. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm going to stay where I'm at uh, on that position. All right. Polly Baca, Clinton delegate to the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Can I get your reaction to the email revelation over the weekend? Well, obviously, I'm disappointed. I'm also a former vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. I was vice chair during the 1980s. And it was very clear when I was vice chair that the DNC must be a neutral body. You know, we, uh, even as vice chair, even though I had a U.S. Senator, Gary Hart, uh, running for president, I, as vice chair, pledged myself to be neutral in that uh, presidential campaign. So I'm disappointed that there were staff members uh, that violated that neutrality uh, pledge that, that, at least in my day, we all made. And it should be made, uh, you know, the DNC needs to be neutral, as does the, you know, uh, the, the Democratic Party all the way up and down the line when you've got uh, primaries of any sort, whether they're, they are presidential or senatorial or, or uh, legislative. You know, there needs to be neutrality on, on the part of the party and those that work for the party to assure uh, the confidence that is important. And by the way, that is the Clinton position. There's got to be uh, neutrality, and that's always been our position. What does this tell you about your party today, Polly Baca? Well, I was just, as I said, you know, I, I'm disappointed that there were staff members that violated that pledge. You know, that that's that's just, a, you know, but but this probably is not the first time it's happened. You know, and and it's individuals that do that. And we need to uh, we need to make sure that that they understand when they go to work for the party that, that they must remain neutral. You know, that, that's what we have to do as, as leaders and, uh, you know, uh, make sure that, that that neutrality is honored. Let's look at one of these emails. As reported by The Washington Post and others, a Clinton lawyer gave direct advice to the Democratic National Committee on dealing with a claim from Sanders that the Clinton campaign was improperly benefiting from a joint fundraising committee it had with the DNC. Now, whether or not the claim about the fundraising committee is true, that seems to show a relationship between the Clinton campaign and the DNC in this, which, as you've said, Polly Baca, is supposed to be neutral. Can I get your thoughts? Well, I'm sure that you can ask any attorneys about their their opinion on issues that come before any particular issue. So so it's valid for uh, the DNC at that point probably should have asked attorneys from both sides, you know, what they thought. And I would I would assume that they did. I don't know that. But I would assume they asked or they should have asked attorneys from both sides their opinion. Do you fear That's that... That's legitimate, the, by the way. 
Mm. Do you fear that what could emerge is a coziness between the Clinton campaign and and the DNC in this? No, there's no coziness. But 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 whenever you have a presidential nominee, and by the way, we want a roll call. There is going to be a roll call because we want to honor, you know, Joe Salazar and those other uh, Bernie delegates that want to what to vote for their candidate. I think that's perfectly acceptable. And there will be a roll call on the floor. I believe it's going to be tomorrow night. So that's that's acceptable. You know, we as, you know, the Clinton delegation support that. And and as does Secretary Clinton. So it's we'll have a roll call and that's good because that honors uh delegates in terms of who they are voting for or who are who they are pledged to vote for. So that's good. And I'm sorry, uh the other question you asked me, I went off on a tangent. That's okay. This uh, a fear that what might emerge is, is a coziness. Oh, no, no, no. You know, recognize that every time that you have a primary, whomever it is that becomes the candidate then takes over the party. So it's not a coziness. Hillary Clinton, once, once she is declared the Democratic candidate for president, will take over the Democratic Party, just as as uh, our opposition took over his party last week. That that's what that's what we always do. And in my day, the uh chairman at that point I, I worked for Larry O'Brien when he was chair of the Democratic National Committee. At the end of the convention in nineteen seventy two, uh, when I was on staff of the DNC, yeah, uh-huh. he uh resigned as chairman and Gene Westwood took over. So that's the way it happens. Uh, Representative Salazar, I'd like to know if if you think Bernie Sanders supporters uh, and perhaps registered Democrats are likely to mobilize to to be the kind of force that the Democratic Party would need knocking on doors and advocating on behalf of a, of a candidate this election year. Well, that's going to be up to the DNC and the Hillary Clinton Um I'll tell you that here on the. Um, so uh, I'll tell you that what's happening here in Philadelphia is that people are extremely upset, uh, not just with the WikiLeaks uh, email scandal, but the fact that uh, that Hillary Clinton then brought on, on the same day brought uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz onto her campaign, and people are very upset about that here. Um, so. I think that there's some work that can be done. I don't want to be a naysayer and a Debbie Downer all the way. What I will say is that there's some work that can be done. But I, but I would advise Secretary Clinton, if she ever took my advice, and maybe she should, um, I would advise that she start doing a better job reaching out to these folks because these folks are the ones that are going to carry the day for her. Um, and she better do it quite quickly. All right. Two delegates from Colorado to the Democratic National Convention. You heard there Joe Salazar, a Bernie Sanders supporter, and Polly Baca, who backs Hillary Clinton. They joined us by phone from Pennsylvania. This is Baca's 14th convention. Her first was in 1964 when she saw Lyndon Johnson become the nominee. Before she left for Philadelphia, we sat down in the studio for her long view. I asked what convention inspired her most? I think I I have to talk of a moment of inspiration in 1964 at the National Convention when Robert Kennedy addressed the delegates. And when he got up to that mic, I was sitting in the audience. I wasn't a delegate. I was just a guest. But when he got up to that mic, 
The roar throughout the hall was just incredible. And then he started to speak. Including about his late brother, John F. Kennedy. When I think of President Kennedy, I think of what Shakespeare said in Romeo and Juliet, uh, when he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he shall make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. There wasn't a dry eye in the hall, not one. We were all crying because we had just lost our president. It was a difficult moment, but at the same time, an incredibly inspiring moment because what it meant was that we could all come back together. To fast forward, weren't you in Los Angeles when when Bobby lost his life, when he was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel? I wasn't that far from him. I was on his campaign staff, and I was living at the Ambassador Hotel. The week before, John Glenn had been with him, so I knew the, the layout. And that night... John Glenn, the pilot astronaut. Yes, he had and been campaigning. And then senator, actually. Yes. He had been campaigning with, uh, with Bobby that year. After so many conventions, are you jaded? Do, do, do you <laughs> suffer from convention fatigue? You know, um, I almost gave up going to conventions in 2008. I wasn't going to go, and then it came to my doorstep. You know, it came here to Denver. And literally, I live six blocks away from the Pepsi Center. And I thought that was kind of a message that I should continue to go. Because conventions, I mean, they are always inspiring. They they tell us who the candidate is. Now, prior to 1980, they weren't scripted. You know, beginning in 1980, when, when I was co-chair, they're scripted. You know, they're all written out. The candidates make agreements ahead of time as to what they're going to agree to and what they're not. And so it's it's, for me... There's always something new. There's always something exciting. Even though it's scripted. Oh, yeah. Because, for example, 2012, I sat in the middle of the Colorado delegation, and I looked up on that stage, and I thought to myself, my goodness, what a difference from 1964. In 2012, as I sat there and saw a Latino bring the convention to order, and I watched as we nominated or renominated an African American for president. And then I saw disabled personalities and and then we saw LGBTQ Congress people give speeches. In other words, I saw America cross that stage, which was a hundred and eighty degrees different than it was in nineteen sixty four. You grew up in Greeley in the nineteen forties and fifties. Yes. How did that affect your decision to go into politics? It was major. I always say that the greatest gift God ever gave me was being born a female child to a poor Mexican-American family in a bigoted community. In a segregated community. It was. We uh, Mexican-Americans, in the church that we went to, there was only one church that we, of my faith, and we had to sit on the side aisles. We couldn't sit in the center. The theaters were segregated. We could only sit in the balconies. Um, Some might wonder why you would be grateful for that. Well, it was the pain. It was the pain of that bigotry that I felt as a child. As a little girl, I just remember having this notion that I had to change it, that it was my responsibility uh, to get involved and to change the way people treated Mexican-Americans. And later in life, it became a, a dedication to changing the way people treated each other because civil rights has always been a passion for me. 
In a recent CNN poll, 65% of voters said they don't see Hillary Clinton as honest. That's unfortunate, because she is. She, I've known her for 40 years, and I have found her to be not only an honest person, but one of the smartest people I've ever met. And it's, you know, we all make mistakes. She certainly is a lot more honest than her opponent, you know, Trump, uh, is truly a pathological liar. I can't sit here and apply the term pathological, but uh, I'll refer to something that we have throughout the campaign season, which is that PolitiFact, which verifies statements that politicians make, has demonstrated that Donald Trump, the majority of what he says, is untrue, and that according to PolitiFact, that Clinton is more often truthful than she is than yes. she is not in terms of her political statements, the ones they verified. And I think what's... Uh, what, but what's the, the disconnect? I, well, the point I want to make right now is that, that she's uh, at least admitted it when she has you know, made a mistake. The disconnect is that she has been battered by uh, the Republicans for 40 years. You know, and folks uh, that don't know her personally, that, that haven't been exposed to her, but that are out you know, just listening to the negative jargon on Fox News or other media don't know the truth. What the Republicans have been successful in doing is developing a doubt in people's minds. She voted for the Iraq war. Yes. Made a mistake. She did. I didn't support the war from the beginning. Um, A lot of people that I know voted for the Iraq war, including uh, Pence. The vice presidential running mate for Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. Since the recent violence between police and communities, Donald Trump has positioned himself as the law and order candidate. What steps should Hillary Clinton take to persuade voters that she can bring an end to the violence? Oh, I think uh, she has already started taking those steps by by working closely uh, with, for example, the mothers of those that that were the victims of police violence, but also reaching out to the police families. She works with all sides, and she brings them together. Quite frankly, Donald Trump saying he's a law and order president scares me because it reminds me of Richard Nixon, who was, I think, the last candidate that said he was law and order. What that means to me as a Mexican-American is that he's going to try to come down on my family to do all that he can to, uh, to punish uh, Mexican-Americans. And even though we've been here... But you're, you're legally in the country, obviously. Uh, well, so uh, my why, family, why? family first came north from Mexico and uh, settled in what is now Bernalillo, uh, New Mexico, uh, in 1600. Right. So why, why would you be targeted under a, a Trump administration? Because of the fact that we were targeted in the 40s and 50s and 60s. I mean, I've been targeted before. My son has been targeted. This isn't something that I personally have not experienced. And so that's why it scares me. Polly, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Polly Baca, longtime Democratic Party activist who served in the Colorado legislature in the 70s and 80s. She is attending her 14th Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia this week. Last week, we spoke to several Colorado delegates to the Republican National Convention, including Kendall Unruh, a delegate who had hoped to block Donald Trump's nomination. The Castle Rock school teacher was obviously unsuccessful, and she blames what she calls the party elite. They rig the system. I don't like to have to say that, and I don't like to have to be honest, and it hurts me to reveal that about my own party that I've been involved with for 30 years. 
Unruh says Trump's nomination puts what she calls true Republicans in a tough position. It's just a new face of the party. And what we're all facing right now, do we want to get it back? Because what our party has been kidnapped, and I'm not so sure I want to pay the ransom to get it back. As a result, she is not sure whom she'll support come November. I personally cannot vote for Donald Trump because voting my conscience would not mean a vote for Donald Trump. I can't vote for Hillary Clinton either because she's actually further away from my conscience than Donald Trump is. So at this point, I'm going to be spoiling my ballot and probably writing in Ronald Reagan. (laughs) That says something if I'm going to be voting for a dead guy over Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. That is Kendall Unruh of Castle Rock, who is a delegate to last week's Republican National Convention. Coming up, your feedback in loud and clear. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Loud and clear is our regular opportunity to hear from you. First off, reaction to my interview with Colorado State University animal scientist Temple Grandin, who says slaughterhouses have made huge improvements in how they treat livestock. Video, she says, is key because cattle and sheep have evolved not to show they're in pain if a predator is around. And that can include people. Because you don't want to advertise to the wolves or the lions, if you're a grazing animal, that you're hurt. And I saw a situation where they um, did some castration on some big bulls, and I hid in the scale house. And when the bull came out of the chute, he didn't know I was in the scale house. And he was rolling around on the ground moaning, definitely showing pain. And I walked out of that scale house, and he immediately jumped up and acted normal. Jeff Montgomery commented at CPRnews.org, Grandin's perceptiveness with regard to animals just boggles my mind. How amazing to be able to see that. The psychology of a processing plant, the bit about herd animals not wanting to be seen in pain, amazing. You may not want to be a carnivore, but if you do, it should be done right. Katie Little of Denver, though, is vegan. She writes, I believe there is no such thing as humane livestock treatment because killing is not humane. To another story, the grave of Western writer and environmentalist Edward Abbey. It is said to be where no one would find it. But author Sean Prentice set out to discover it. We spoke last week about his latest book, Finding Abbey. Josh Boisevain of Denver said on our Facebook page, CPR News, I wish more Westerners would stop chasing Ed Abbey and start digging into Wallace Stegner or Charles Bowden. It seems Abby would agree with you, Josh. He once called Stegner the only living American writer worthy of the Nobel. As for Charles Bowden, he wrote extensively about the Southwest and Mexico, including a book called Murder City about violence on the U.S.-Mexico border. Our interview about concealed carry permit holders in Colorado and what they should do in a traffic stop drew praise from listener Mark Bergman of Eagle Vale. He also told us that when he's pulled over, he doesn't offer up that he's legally carrying because, quote, it may escalate the emotions and fears of the officer making the roadside stop. So many concealed carry permit holders think that they're earning respect by quickly disclosing when in reality they may make the situation worse. On Facebook, Christine Gray of Denver said she also has a concealed carry permit, but the vetting she went through wasn't as thorough as our guest, head of the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police, Gary Barber, described. They've gone through a very extensive background investigation by the sheriff of the county in which they got the permit. 
Gray's apparently wasn't so extensive. She writes that she had to fill out a questionnaire asking if she had a history of mental illness or thoughts of suicide, and that it would have been easy to lie. Quote, it was more like taking me on my word for the info. We need more. My interview with 18-year-old Joel Crank, a delegate to the Republican National Convention, brought a range of reactions. Crank asserted that being gay was a choice. Grace Christus of Aurora said Ryan's polite insistence on asking Crank if he chose to be straight spoke volumes. Meanwhile, Daniel Milan, also of Aurora, wasn't as impressed, saying, I normally love listening to Ryan Warner's interviews, but this morning I listened to one with the 18-year-old Republican delegate, and I was to the point of pulling my hair out. Finally, we profiled a Denver neighborhood that the city says is about to take off. Westwood is along Alameda Avenue, west of I-25. It's relatively poor and has a higher crime rate than much of the rest of the city. But to Alan Good, it's home. He heard our interview, recorded at the site of a new affordable housing development, and he got in touch. We moved here strictly because it was the only place we could afford to live. But now, there's like probably not another neighborhood in Denver that I would want to live in. Good works for Community College of Denver, which allows him to stay at home with the kids. His wife is a social worker. There's like good things and bad things if, if new new people are going to move here. I guess I'd like for the schools to get better because my son is going to start going to school. I don't want to see people priced out of their homes, though. And we'll continue to check in on Westwood as that neighborhood changes. We hope you'll keep checking in with us. Feedback, story ideas, again, we're CPR News on Facebook, at Colorado Matters on Twitter, or email us through the website cprnews.org. You can click Contact at the top of the page, and you can always comment beneath any article that you read at our website. Still to come, an Olympic event you may not have heard of, Prone Rifle, and a top competitor in that sport just graduated from the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Olympics start in Rio next week, and for the first time, an athlete will compete who qualified as a cadet at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. 22-year-old David Higgins joins us as we cover Coloradans competing in Rio. And David, congratulations. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. So your Olympic event is one people may not have heard of, Prone Rifle. You're on the ground and you shoot at a target 50 meters away. That's a little over half a football field. I'm curious how big the bullseye is that you're aiming for. Right, so the uh, the 10 ring is 10.4 millimeters and uh, you know we shoot a 22 caliber bullet, but you're aiming for the center of that because you want to the it's scored to the tenth of a point, so a ten point nine would be the highest score you could possibly get. So you want to get that bullet right in the center of that ten ring. So that's what you're aiming for is just put the bullet on top of each on top of itself every single time. So what is that like the size of I don't know a dime? Uh, the the ten ring would be about the size of a dime. Yes. Okay, and you're shooting even within that, as we said, from a little over a half a football field away. I understand that it's it's much quieter than you might think a shooting event would be. Describe the ambiance. Definitely. Uh, so in years past, it's kind of like golf. You know, people are quiet, not much talking going on in the range. Uh, the 22 itself is not, not very loud. 
Uh, in fact, it doesn't break the sound barrier, so it generally doesn't break the sound barrier, so you don't hear that loud crack. Mm. Uh, but in, in recent years, past couple of years, they've been trying to get it to be a little more, um, I guess, interactive with the crowds. So they're starting to play music during the events and everything. Uh, still, the bullets are not very loud, so you know the fans don't, don't put in earplugs generally. They just kind of listen to the music, mingle around, and talk. Does the music distract you? Uh, so it depends on what's playing, you know. Uh, they've kind of, initially they'd play anything, anything goes. Uh, but I think this past year they said no, you know, heavy pulsating music. So it's generally just regular pop music, which I listen to on the radio all the time. So it's it's fine, fine for me. I see. This is not one of the most watched events on television. <laughs> what do you like best about this sport? So for me, the prone event... Uh, is the most accurate of all the events. You know, you're trying to you're trying to tune the gun to make sure that the gun and the ammunition is all matched up. Uh, you know, you're torquing your you're torquing your screws to make sure that the gun and everything is mechanically as you know as perfect as it can be. And so that's one aspect of it. But then you introduce the human who has a lot more variables than the gun and ammunition itself does. So it's all about you know, minimizing all these variables. And I just love that it's it's kind of the pursuit of perfection. You know, you're always aiming for the center. You're always trying to get that perfect 10.9. Um, and it doesn't always happen, but you're always, that's what you're always striving to do. And with prone, you have the most variables, but I guess the best the best results out of any of the events. And, and again, prone means you're lying on the ground. And as you say, you are desperately trying to minimize, I suppose, the interruptions that your own psychology and your own physiology uh, could affect. I'm thinking even your breath, your heartbeat, I understand, are things that could, in very microscopic ways, affect how you aim, right? Right. So any force that's applied to the gun during the shot is going gonna, is gonna to affect where the bullet goes. So, you know, but just to, so they say that shooting is 90% mental and 10% physical, which is, it's, it's very true. You know, your head has to be screwed on right in order to get everything going. You can't be taking shortcuts. You have to ensure that you're very self-disciplined and you're making sure everything's going right. But then with the physical aspect, you know, we shoot between our breaths in the lull of our, in the lull of our breathing. And then we have to shoot between our heartbeats So, you know, I'm a very, cardio oriented guy because I want to have as few heartbeats as I can, you know, even when I'm excited so that I have a larger window to shoot between those heartbeats. And we wear some equipment that kind of, you know, allows us to dampen those. So underneath this canvas jacket that I wear, I have a, you know, a thin sweater on, which helps to dampen the heartbeat, uh, into the sling, which is connected to my gun as well as the arm. And you know, that dampens the heartbeat. But there's regulations on how thick they can be. Otherwise, people would have these massive sweaters that would just dampen <laughs> the heartbeat completely. So you also, you have to be able to figure out how to control it yourself. Since you've said that you shoot between heartbeats, I've been sitting here trying to see if I can detect when I'm between heartbeats. I guess I can. That's something <laughs> I, I'm now aware of. And so you're in all this heavy gear. It's predicted to be around 80 degrees in Rio with 80% humidity. So, yeah, you may tamp down the heartbeats effects, but now you're adding this huge level of discomfort. Right. So 
So we went down in April for uh, the the Rio test event, and it was really hot. <laughs> you know, we were just sweating like crazy. Um, so this summer, after I graduated from the academy, I went out to Fort Benning, Georgia, where the Army Marksmanship Unit is, mm. and I've been training there pretty much the whole summer between uh, our international training camps, and it's been really hot down there too, so <laughs> I think it's been the best place that I could have been training. Yeah, and I think it shares the humidity as well. You're listening to Colorado Matters. Definitely. I'm Ryan Warner, and David Higgins joins us. He's just graduated from the Air Force Academy. And he's actually the first Olympian to have qualified for the Games as an Air Force cadet. I was surprised to to learn that. Were you too, David? Uh, yes, I didn't know that. I I know, you know, we go into the gym where the track is, and there's this uh, one of the guys uh, on the track team is a two-time gold medalist, and I thought he was the only Olympian. I was actually wrong. There's been five Olympians from the Academy, and I guess I'm number six now, but... I didn't realize that I was the first person to make a team as a cadet, so I thought that was really cool. Right, to qualify as a cadet. And you beat the favorite in the Olympic trials, a man who'd won three medals <laughs> in three different games, and people who, who follow Prone Rifle were surprised. They'd called you an underdog, a long shot. Uh, did that rub you the wrong way? Uh, you, you know, you could say that. I mean, Matt Emmons is a great shooter. Uh, he was he was definitely favored to win, but I knew I was going to be up there, uh, definitely in the top couple. Because two years uh, two years ago, I came in third for world championship tryouts, and top three go to world championships. So I knew I was going to be up there. Uh, but Matt's Matt's a very high level shooter, so it's going to be hard to beat him. But uh, you know, day two, after the second day, I was sitting in second place, and he had a sizable lead. And I just went back to the hotel room that night and thought to myself, hey, David, this might be your last match ever, just because, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to have the time to train for the Olympics and stuff like that in the future. So let's just go out there and enjoy prone, because uh, it's, the, it's the event I love. So I went out there, had a heck of a day, you know, shot a personal best, which was a world-class score, and it just happened to be enough to overtake Matt and go into the final and win the match. So it's very exciting. Yeah. And how interesting that it came after a kind of surrendering of the results, a kind of resignation. Um, I understand that Prone Rifle has been in the Olympics since 1912, but you have said there's some chance this could be the last year as an Olympic event. Why is that? Right. So the ISSF, the International Shooting Sport Federation, uh, is contemplating taking it out. They're always trying to figure out how to make shooting a more TV friendly, <laughs> TV friendly thing, which, you know, I don't have the greatest ideas for it. But, you know, this is one of their ways to come up with it. Uh, they're considering taking prone out of the out of the Olympics after this after this uh, this Olympics. So, you know, we won't know till November. I'm really hoping they don't because I love this event, but uh, I guess we'll just have to see. You going to do anything to try to save it? Well, there's a petition going around. Uh, you know, I've signed the petition. Uh, and so the, I, and, I talk to everybody I can, telling them it's a great event. <laughs> <laughs> you are the prone rifle spokesman. So I want to note that uh, you've graduated from the Air Force Academy. You'll be joining the Marine Corps after that. Um, and as you head down to Rio, let me ask you about the conditions, you know, between Zika, the water quality, what are reportedly as well, poor housing conditions for athletes, add to that threats of terrorism, political turmoil, you know, it's a rough situation. Anything that gives you pause 
before you head down there? Well, not really. I mean, we were down there in April, and it, I don't know, I wasn't too concerned with things that were going on there. The range is built, um, you know, and it's a great-looking range. Uh, Zico, I think I saw about three mosquitoes the entire time I was there, Mm. and I suppose, and this is their winter down there now, so they're supposed to be even less, so I'm not really too concerned with that. You know, obviously, I wear my bug spray and do all the protective measures, but, uh, you know, I don't, I think Team USA, I'm pretty sure Team USA send a team down there to make sure that the village is, the, the apartments that we're staying in in the village are all good to go. So I'm pretty sure the U.S. Olympic Committee is going to do everything they can to make sure that this is a great event for Team USA and that we have every opportunity to bring home as many medals as we can. Sounds like you feel you're in good hands. Well, David, I'm really excited to watch Prone Rifle. I've not done that in previous games, and it'll be fun to watch you. (laughs) Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It was great being on. David Higgins will compete for Team USA, as I said, in Prone Rifle. August 12th is his date. He joins us as we cover Coloradans competing in Rio. You can hear our interview with soccer star Mallory Pugh at CPRnews.org. When we come back, a dream delivery service. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the wee small hours of the morning before 4 a.m., poet Matthias Felina will get out of bed next month. He'll hop on his bike and deliver door-to-door short poems, or as he describes them, dreams. He calls this the Dream Delivery Service. This is the third year he's done it in Denver, and this fall, Felina will bring dreams as well to Virginia, Arizona, and Texas. And welcome to the program, Matthias. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Is it true that this whole thing started as a joke? <laughs> I think like most things in my life, this started as a joke. Uh, I had to figure out what I was doing for a summer and thought, well, maybe I can trick people into subscribing so I'll deliver dreams to them every day. And then the next morning I woke up and thought, well, maybe I actually can. (laughs) So was it an economic driver? Like you were thinking, how can I get people to pay for my art? Yeah, as a a poet, they're probably not surprised that poetry is not the most lucrative of the arts. Um, I was trying to figure out a way to uh, pay bills based on poetry. I mean, I have traveled before. I think it was in Europe somewhere. Um, I had someone come up to me and say, I will write you a poem for whatever it was in euros. Yeah. So in a way, this is kind of systematizing that idea, I guess. Uh, You write these dreams in the surrealist style, sort of removed from typical logic or rationale. And I'd like to have you read from a dream that you wrote that was actually addressed to me. (laughs) So this is my dream. Go ahead. Sure. All the dreams are in second person. You're at a funeral, and after the ceremony ends, two men in dour suits wheel the casket into the center of the room. People walk in with folding chairs and arrange them around the casket. The mourners sit at the casket, and a long covered tray, as long as the casket itself, is set atop the casket. Everyone prepares to eat, arranging their napkins, sipping at their glasses of water. You're visibly unnerved and do not sit down. One of the other mourners, the deceased's cousin, you think, is his name Harvey, notices this. He says, oh, this is just how we do it around here. Please join us. He offers you the seat next to him, and you take it, not wanting to offend. How did this idea of a coffin feast, lunch meats, 
that had a <laughs> casket occur to you? I have no idea. Uh, so I write, a, I try to write 40 of these a day. I try to write a unique dream for every subscriber. And as I'm writing, I'm sort of lost in this dream logic of my own. So I, I only remember this because you put it in front of me. Mm. I would not remember it normally. And I don't remember how the ideas come to me, really. That's a sort of trance experience. You don't have to answer this, but are you sober when you do this? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Other than very sleep-deprived, I'm sober. Dream logic. Say Mm -hmm. more about that. Uh, I mean, if we think about the reality logic where things happen and we have to deal with them and we have to respond to them and make sense of them, that's not what happens in a dream. And I think that's the heart of surrealism, too, is that strange things happen and we just enjoy the strangeness without making sense of them. Mm. And in a dream, you know, the casket can be wheeled up and then you can eat at the casket and everyone's having a great time. Right. No one's saying, isn't that a little strange? Right. Right. Yeah. Strange is at the heart of it. So then just more meaning and more event kind of happens out of it. Do your own dreams ever influence the dreams you write for others? It's funny. I rarely remember my dreams, actually. Mm. So uh, in the rare moments that I do recall something from a dream... It'll probably go straight in because I need fodder. I just need stuff when I'm writing these. I don't remember my dreams much either. I'm really jealous of people who do. Yeah, me too. You feel that? Yeah. I'm always the person who actually wants to hear people's dreams. Uh, Well, in that case, you hear dreams from friends (laughs) and then integrate them into the ones you deliver. I do. I warn them that I'm going to steal them, but I steal them. Yeah. Right. Your dreams may be published, in other words. (laughs) So as we said, you'll be up before sunrise. Mm -hmm. You ride your bike to deliver dreams onto subscribers' doorsteps. Once you complete your deliveries, you go to a coffee shop and you sit there for hours writing dreams for the next day. Yep. Um, You had about 45 subscribers when you did this last time. Is it hard to write so many different dreams and to make them... Well, do they have to be different? Would you give someone the same dream? If I don't get up to 40 in a day... uh, People sometimes dream the same dream. Okay. So they double up. (laughs) Uh, On a good day, I get to 40, and I'm just sort of in a zone where I can continue writing these little narratives and churn them out and not look back. And then sometimes other things happen and life gets in the way and or I'm out of creative juice and uh, I don't quite get all 40 written. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with poet Matthias Svelina, who has a dream delivery service. Doesn't that sound just lovely? <laughs> and and what do you know people to do with their dreams once they're delivered? I don't know. I, I It's sort of beyond me. I've heard people who just wake up and find them on their doorstep and read them, and it kind of enters into some sort of uh, psychic zone like a dream does, and a little memory, a little event. Some people are traveling and so come back home and there's a big stack of these little pink envelopes waiting for them. And they, I had one friend who was a subscriber in Alaska who was actually in the North Pole for the entire time of the dream delivery and had a stack of them and had a party and had his friends kind of hand them around and read them all, Hmm. all at once. And share them with friends then. Yeah. This is not a free service. You charge $40 a month for hand delivery, a postage fee for out-of-towners. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you put a price on something like this? I don't know. <laughs> 40 seemed... Uh, it seems reasonable, but, you know, you go into a gallery sometimes <laughs> and you think that painting should not be $10,000. Yeah. You could, you know, who knows? Why, why, why aren't dreams $400? I've had artist friends tell me, like, you know, you should be charging like $500 for this. But <laughs> I want it to be accessible. Uh, I want it to be a strange kind of 
experience for somebody who wants to sort of read a a book like thing over the course of a month. Hmm. Um, so I wanted to be relatively affordable, but also worth the amount of time I put in since I put in about 20 hours a day when I'm doing it. You also offer for an additional charge <laughs> nightmares. <laughs> yeah. And and nightmares cost an extra three seventy five a month. <laughs> yeah. Can we hear a section of a nightmare before I ask you about why nightmares are more expensive? <laughs> sure. Okay. This is actually coincidental with your previous guest. Um you're on the US volleyball team, but you're late for the first match of the Olympics and you can't find the stadium. It is so hot the streets are gooey and stick to your feet with every step. The tar covers your ankles and calves with a suffocating grip. And just when it seems like you'll never find the stadium, finally, you find the stadium. There's a long, dark tunnel you must walk through to enter, the distant light a pinprick. You hear what you think is the ocean, but as you progress, you realize it is the loud resounding of a stadium full of boos. Mm. You enter the stadium, and the seats are full of angry, red-faced, booing men. In the middle of the stadium, you see a large dog with an enormous head. He's chewing the shoes you just bought. You haven't even gotten a chance to wear these shoes. You feel terrible. But then the crowd notices you, and they begin to boo even louder. It's like one of those anxiety dreams in which you've gone to high school naked and forgotten that you, you know, were supposed to be in class or something. Yeah, that's a classic. Why are nightmares more expensive than dreams? What a strange pricing structure. <laughs> I did it as a joke. It never occurred to me people would order them. Uh, so I thought it was just funny to charge $3.75 more for nightmares. And then people ordered them. Uh, what, what is but the... they actually are harder to write than dreams. Oh, they are? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think the thing that is scary in a nightmare is rarely the narrative. It's the tone. It's the atmosphere. It's the way an image, uh, you know, triggers or resounds for a person. So sometimes it can be like, you know, there is a bucket in the middle of the uh, of the street, but it's really scary, you know, and that doesn't make for a very good piece of writing. Mm, so there's, in a way, there's a little bit more crafting that has to happen with a nightmare. Yeah. What is the balance right now between nightmare and dreams subscribers? Majority dreams. Majority dreams. Yeah. All right. That Somehow that makes me feel good about humanity. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It's strange to send, drop off these little yeah, bummer, scary experiences for people every day. Do you sleep much? I mean, it sounds like <laughs> when you're operating the dream delivery service, it's not terribly conducive to normal hours. No, I, I'm i pretty prone to insomnia to begin with. And then uh, during these months, I usually sleep four hours or less a day. And on the other hand, I, I get to do the things that I love most in life, which is bike around the city when it's empty, write mm -hmm. all day long, and be weird without consequence. So. You compose these on a computer and then you delete the files. Yeah. Uh, up until this year, I've deleted all of them at the end of the month. So the only thing that continues to exist is the little slips of paper that people get. Uh, this year, I saved 30 to make a little uh, kind of handmade art book out of some of them. So I'll have examples of what I'm, uh, what I'm doing as I travel to different cities. But the ephemeral nature, I suppose, makes, makes for a certain beauty. I hope so. I want it to be cryptic and ephemeral. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. That is Denver poet and author Matthias Felina. On August 1st, his dream delivery service returns to Denver. And uh, then this fall, he'll deliver dreams to people in cities like Richmond, Tucson, and in Texas, the town of Marfa. In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole world 
world is fast asleep You lie awake And think about the girl And never ever think of counting sheep And that's Colorado Matters for today with special thanks to Nathan Heffel, Michelle P. Fulcher, Rachel Estabrook, and Michael Hughes. This is CPR News. If only she would call.